Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Pratt Library. On behalf of our Executive Director, Dr. Carla Hayden, the Board of Trustees, and the Board of Directors, it is my pleasure to welcome you here this evening to the Pratt Library. This evening, we have an exciting program. But before I let the person who's going to do the introductions come up, I want you to know that we have two mics. Well, we actually have one mic here. And when, when it's time for the Q&A, I ask that those who have questions come to the mic so that you can speak into the mic. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the mic over. And again, welcome to the Pratt Library. Well, thanks, Vivian, very much. We are so happy once again to be here at the Pratt Library. And I also am very delighted to, in, to welcome you all here. And thank you so much for joining us. Tonight's actually the 12th event in our Talking About Race series that we at the Open Society Institute have been proud to uh, host along with the Pratt Free Library. Before we begin the program, I want to thank uh, some of our sponsors, uh, Robin and our, our, our Woods, who's our, an OSI board member, and her husband, Jimmy Wood, and Vernon Reed, for their very important and ongoing support uh, for this series. Throughout our Talking About Race series, and this is actually the third year, we've addressed a number of, of questions that are closely related uh, to the work that we do at the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore. Our work actually focuses on three of the biggest problems and challenges that face our city. We tackle drug addiction by uh, making sure that treatment is easily available. We're working on curtailing the overuse of incarceration. And we work on connecting our children to school so that they're connected to school and on the way to, their, uh, to success. In everything we do, the issue of race uh, touches upon our work as we, seek to, uh, uh, as we seek to achieve both opportunity and justice. We're especially concerned with people who live in poverty and who, because of historical or current uh, discrimination, uh, do not have the opportunities that they deserve. Tonight we'll be addressing an issue that we at the Open Society have actually been working on for a number of years breaking the barriers, helping black males achieve academic success. The good news is that as a result of our work and the work of many others, especially the city schools, our public school district, things have been slowly changing. And I also want to recognize my colleague Jane Sundius, who directs our education and youth development work in the front row here. According to a recent release of high school performance data that was released by the Maryland State Department of Education, Baltimore City Public Schools have again increased their graduation rates. But it's the dramatic gains of African-American boys that is most noteworthy. In 2004, only 1,200 boys graduated from high school, and a greater number, over 1,700, dropped out. Today, almost 1,800 African-American boys graduated, and the dropout rate was reduced by almost two-thirds to 600. 
Baltimore is actually leading the nation with these statistics. Now, why is this happening? Our schools are getting better in many ways through a determined effort to increase their rigor, their relevance, and their resources, all with this emphasis on increasing graduation rates. And clearly, one of the reasons we're seeing this steady improvement is because we're no longer issuing suspensions for every school infraction. We're keeping kids in the classroom, making sure they know what our expectations are, and we're keeping them engaged in exciting academic and after-school activities. Teachers are recognizing that instead of pushing kids out of the classroom into unsupervised territory, it's more important and actually a sign of success to keep students in class and learning, including learning from their mistakes. With suspensions down, we at the Open Society Institute are now partnering with Baltimore City Schools to improve attendance, as we know there is a strong correlation between attendance and graduation. But although this information is most definitely positive, we still do have a long way to go. Our goal will only be satisfied when every child who enters classroom leaves as a graduate having mastered an education that will serve him throughout his life with all sorts of opportunities, whether that's at college, other kinds of education, or a job that will really allow that young person to thrive in the future. So tonight, we're going to discuss ways to make this idea a reality and not just a dream. Now, as Vivian mentioned, um, after we have a moderated discussion, we will take questions from the audience, and I do ask you all to try to stick to the question part as opposed to the comment part so that we'll be able to hear as much as possible uh, from our panelists tonight. So now I'll introduce our speakers. The first thing is our moderator, and this is my great colleague who actually hails from New York, Sean Dove, who is the campaign manager for the Open Society Foundation's Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Sean has two, more than two decades of leadership experience in youth development, education, and community building. He served as one of the founding directors of the New York City's Beacon School movement in the early 1990s while working with the Harlem Children's Zone. As a creative communities, communities director for the National Guild of Community Schools of the Arts, he led a national initiative that partnered community schools of the arts and public housing communities in 20 United States cities. As New York Vice President for Mentor National Mentoring Partnerships, he initiated a strategic response to the lack of African-American and Latino male mentors for New York City boys by creating a public awareness and recruitment initiative called the Male Mentoring Project. And I can tell you that Sean's dedication is really unsurpassed, and he continues many of these initiatives at the Open Society Institute. Now for our special guests, uh, we have Dr. Ivory Tolson, who is an associate professor at Howard University, a senior research analyst for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and a current editor-in-chief of the Journal of Negro Education. He's been dubbed a rising 2028 presidential candidate by the Washington Post, a modern-day Harlem Renaissance writer by the New African Journal, and a Young Researcher of the Year by Southern University. And according to uh, Howard University's Quest magazine, uh, he's reported, and we can believe it, a much sought-after lecturer and researcher on a number of serious sociological and psychological issues that have implications for African-American um, males and, and, and women. 
In addition to more than 40 publications and research presentations, Ivory also gave expert commentary in three documentaries, some of which uh, were seen here in Baltimore, on black male achievement, Beyond the Bricks, Hoodwinked, and The Promised Trackers. He's known as a myth buster, and I think you'll be able to have uh, an experience of seeing some of those myths being busted tonight. Uh, Dr. Tolson has published reports challenging the merits of popular research reports and news sources that present negative statistics about black people. Our second guest is Dr. Raymond Winbush, who is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University. He has also taught at Oakwood College, Alabama A&M, Vanderbilt University, and Fisk University. He's the recipient of numerous grants, including one from the Kellogg Foundation, to establish a national dialogue on race. So he's a very appropriate participant tonight. He is the author of The Warrior Method, A Parent's Guide to Rearing Healthy Black Boys, the former treasurer and executive board member of the National Council of Black Studies, and he's currently on the editorial board of the Journal of Black Studies. Dr. Winbush has been the professional consultant and southern region president to the Association of a black culture centers, and he's also lectured on the challenges faced by African men and the struggle for reparations through the United States, London, Amsterdam, Sydney, Paris, Brussels. In 2002, Dr. Winbush aided in establishing the Global African Congress and appeared as race relations expert on the Oprah Winfrey Show in 2005. So that's a, a lot to tell you about these participants, and I think uh, it, it sets the setting and you'll understand why uh, in their discussion tonight, they really pull on a, a rich source of research and thought that they both have done. So thank you for being here, and I'll turn it over now to my colleague, Sean. Thank you, Diana. I'm just trying to figure out this uh, mic here. And uh, I also want to just uh, ask everyone here to uh, just give yourselves a round of applause, because uh, Thursday night, we can all be somewhere else in uh, the city of Baltimore, but it is very clear that this is a critical issue, not only in this city, but uh, across America. And so I am really excited to uh, be here tonight. And I uh, also want to say, um, in addition to uh, thanking uh, OSI Baltimore and uh, Jane and Diana's leadership for the work that they're doing here with the foundation and their colleagues there, uh, uh, I, I couldn't go another second without uh, thanking uh, our donor, our living donor, Mr. George Soros, who... Uh, is, uh, you know, we're blessed to uh, be working for a, a billionaire philanthropist that really puts his money where his mission is. And uh, three years ago, had the courage uh, and the audacity in philanthropy to launch a campaign for black male achievement, which I am really uh, uh, honored to, uh, to lead. And so I'm glad you did the uh, bios. I don't have to do that. I was already uh, ready to do that, Diana, so I thank you for uh, sparing me that. I almost feel like, um, you know, I was with Ivory Tolson uh, at the Muhammad Ali Center a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, for some training with uh, leaders in mentoring and, and fatherhood. And I just feel like I just got to say, let's get ready to rumble. Uh, I just had to say that. And you did mention that both of our esteemed uh, uh, panelists tonight are uh, authors, uh, Dr. Wimbush, uh, the author of the, uh, the Warrior Method, A Parent's Guide to Rearing Healthy Black Boys. Um, as the father of twin boys, I just started diving into this, and there's some uh, interesting stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, Dr. Tolson, uh, 2028 presidential candidate, 
I'm going to start being a lot nicer <laughs> to you. Um, uh, one of the things, and we, it, we're, we're pleased and honored to support his work at the uh, Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and I'm sure he will make available uh, Breaking Barriers 2, Plotting the Path Away from Juvenile Detention and Toward Academic Success for School-Age African-American Males. And so uh, let's, uh, let's get started. And so what we're going to do is um, for the next 45 minutes uh, basically have a conversation and some dialogue. And then we're going to open it up because we are here to uh, uh, talk about race. And uh, I know that there are uh, great ideas and insights uh, in the audience, and so we're going to open it up and have a, a conversation. And I also want to re reiterate what uh, Diana said about question. Uh, there's a 30-second limit for your question, and we'll, we'll cut the mic off. This is not an opportunity for the soapbox. We can do that later. You can write your op-ed later or, or, or whatever. And so I'm hopping on a train at 9.30 tonight going back uh, north, so I have no problem with being rude and cutting people off, and uh, <laughs> as long as Jane gets me out of town very quickly. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to ask each panelist to uh, kind of open up with a, a, a three-minute uh, introduction and, and, and statement. And in that statement, um, I'm going to frame it uh, with uh, three points that I'm going to ask you to uh, touch, uh, touch on. And, and the first one is, in your opinion, what is at the root of the problem in American education for black boys, right? We're not going to spend a lot of time on the data and, 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 and stats. We will a little bit, but in your opinion, what's the root problem? What will it take to turn things around? And what's race got to do with it? Okay? So uh, we're going to start with you, Dr. Tolson. All right. All right, good evening, everyone. All right, thank you all so much for inviting me back to Baltimore. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm kind of leaning in. Uh, <laughs> Okay, but um, I want to address the first question first. What does race have to do with it? Because I think that's uh, the more compelling question. And I, I started my research because I wanted us to talk about race, particularly as it pertains to African-American males, much differently than I had seen it represented in the media. Uh, one of the things that I noticed when I... Okay. Uh, one of the things that I noticed when I first started research related to African-American male achievement was the absence of the word achievement. Most of it had something to do with failure. It had something to do with an achievement gap. It had something to do with some negative consequence of black males. And the, the segment of black males that were being marginalized were black males who were continuing to achieve despite immeasurable odds against them. Uh, and, you know, when I worked in Philadelphia, uh, I did wraparound work. I remember working with a, a, a young, young man who uh, had uh, what was classified as disruptive behavior disorders, attention de deficit disorders, and all those types of things. I worked with him in his home, and I remember the deterioration of that home. I remember his, uh, his, his mother I never saw. She was addicted to crack cocaine. His father had been shot and killed on the same block that he lived on. Uh, his grandmother, who set up the services, went to jail a couple of weeks after I started working with him. And he was living with these three young aunts. The, the oldest one was 28, and the youngest one was 18 years old. And they were taking care of uh, some of their brother's kids, some of their own kids. And so in all, there was a, it was about 10 kids in the house. And one of the things that was really amazing to me was not the fact that the kid that I was working with 
had these behavior problems, but the fact that out of the 10 kids in the house, he was the only one who had been diagnosed with the problem, and most of the others presented more or less as normal young kids who were just trying to understand their reality. And so when I think about, uh, when, I, when I was approached by the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation uh, to help them with research related to black male, uh, black, the status of black males in schools, I knew that I needed to find a way to incorporate black males who actually were achieving in my analysis plan. So I didn't want to look at all black males and compare them to white males because I felt there was limited information we could glean from comparing all black people, all black males, to white males. Uh, what I wanted to do was look at black males who were achieving in these same communities, how are they doing it? That's what I wanted to bottle up and, and capture. Now as far as where we are today, and there's a, there's a lot of ways in which I can answer that. Uh, I'm, I'm steeped in numbers. Uh, I, I analyze just about every day. But when I, when I talk to people beyond the numbers, when I talk to people who are on the ground, people who are at the schools, community leaders, uh, some here in Baltimore, but all across the nation who are doing work with young black males, it seems like the greatest problem, that root cause, is the disconnect between young black males and their teachers. It, it, they, they are being taught by a lot of teachers, and I love teachers, I wanna say that. I'm not, I'm not someone who, who bashes teachers. Uh, I like working with teachers, I like consulting with teachers uh, in a variety of different settings. I like talking to them about their experiences in the classroom. But the reality is that 63% of the teaching force is white female. A lot, of young black a lot of young black males are being taught by people who are from outside their community and have limited understanding of what's going on. What separates the more effective teacher, regardless of race, and the teacher who is doing more damage than good to the kids that she's working with or he's working with are the ones that truly take the time to understand the nuances of the community. So when they see the peculiarities in the behavior, they have a context to connect it to, so they're not looking at them as just bad kids. They're looking at kids that have to adapt to certain conditions. They will have a conversation with them, and they're able to help them to adapt in the school setting. And so I think that's one of the root causes. I know I answered two of your three questions, uh, but... Um, Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll okay. get back to it. All right. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Wimbush, uh, in your opinion, uh, in research, what is that the root of the problem in American education. And I thank you, Dr. Tolson, for uh, uh, getting us focused not necessarily on the achievement, closing the gap, but raising standards because the United States is, uh, I think, number 16 globally when it comes to education. So that means that uh, everyone else isn't doing too well either, right? And so we don't want to close a gap to get to a point where we're still at low, low standards. So thank you for uh, uh, bringing that to our attention. What's at the root? of the problem, what will it take to turn things around, and what's race got to do with it? Well, you know, this is like picking up an elephant by the tail, and, um, but I'm gonna try it. You know, we'll probably see the tail at least. Um, I think we usually, ask, like Ivory was saying, we usually ask the question, uh, is there racism involved with the education of black males? And I, I like to flip that around and say, is there education involved with racism? Is it, look at racism as the system. 
rather than a subset of uh, black males being a subset of that system. So let me give a tangible illustration of this. Um, I've traveled to London, Paris, all over the place, and if I were to close my eyes and talk to black males, the parents of black males, they're all saying the same thing. London, Paris, Sydney, all over the United States. So as a black male, I had to you know, make the conclusion, is there just something wrong with brothers all over the planet? You know, or is there something wrong with the planet mm. itself? And so I chose the latter, you know, because I really believe that's the problem. Um, Edgar Epps was my advisor when I was doing my doctorate, and he told me something 30-something years ago. He said, Ray, don't believe 95% of what you read about black males, 95%. The only thing I would disagree with that would probably up it by about two or three more percentage points. Uh, and I found, I found that what uh, Dr. Epps told me 30 years ago is still true. Um, so I think that the system of racism uh, is what we need to talk about and how black males fit in that system, not only in Baltimore or Maryland or in the United States, but globally. Something's happening to black males. They're being assaulted educationally. And I'm including not just the brothers in East Baltimore or Sandtown, Winchester, and places like that, but I'm talking about the brother that lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. It's, it's an attack at all levels. So, you know, the, you know, to get to the point, I think the number one problem facing black males and, by extension, black folk in the world is racism, white supremacy. That's number one. I think that what you've got to deal with, people are always asking me, I know they ask Ivory, you know, people will say, uh, Dr. Wimbers, we want you to come in here and tell us how to cure black males, and you've got 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, and I can't do that. You know, and so I tell my audiences, look, you've got to deal with dealing with black males. We need to do intervention with black males. No doubt about that. And those interventions can take a variety of ways. But you also need to intervene on the system, which we find very difficult to do. Now, a good example of a systems intervention was what Thurgood Marshall and Charlie Houston did in the late 40s and 1950s in this country called Brown versus Board. That was the intervention of the system. We want to now intervene. We want to fix black males. They're broken in Baltimore, in Sydney, in London, in Paris. They're all broken. We want to fix them. And then the third thing, which was the racism, is what race has to do with already said that. So let's. Okay, and, and, and I think you touched on what will it take to turn things around, which is a systemic approach, but if you wanted to add anything there. A, a two-pronged approach. If you're saying, I'm going to really fix these brothers, these young brothers K through 12, I'm going to fix them, I'm going to give them a lot of program, I'm going to give them the warrior method, whatever, and that's all I'm going to do, you failed at the beginning. You've got to say, now, what do I do with the system? that is creating these problems in the first place. And that's where most of us feel very daunted about. We feel like it's too big. You know, it's, Ray, let's don't talk about that. Let's talk about the boy. And we got to do more than that. And Dr. Tolson, you uh, highlighted something about the system, the public education system, as it relates to uh, black boys when you talked about the uh, teacher diversity. 
uh, one of race and one of uh, gender. And uh, I think he said it was 62% of the teachers are uh, uh, white, white white females. And so uh, shifting that is going to take some time. Mm -hmm. And so what can be done now in the way of professional development, uh, teacher training, uh, perceptions uh, that we have of, uh, of, of black boys. Uh, I have heard uh, the, the analogy that uh, a, a black first grader that is um, active in the class and, and, and exploring uh, is disruptive, but that same activity and behavior uh, in a white boy could be see, conceived as um, he's exploring his, uh, his uh, territory and right, being right. imaginative, and they're treated two different ways. Mm-hmm. So how do we address systemically this issue of yeah. Uh, teachers? Yeah, uh, good question. And we, perception, I think that's the key word. We have to change the perception. And I think a lot of the information that gets put out there is altering the perception in a way that serves against our best interests. When I first released Breaking Barriers in 2008, uh, it got a lot of attention, and I I ended up uh, sitting before a lot of teachers and administrators and talking about the findings of the report. But what I found myself pushing back against was their idea, the notion that they had that black males were beyond repair. And a a lot of that information they got from their own interpretation of some of the information that people who are in the same work as me has given them. For example, you know, the stat, uh, it's, there's more black men in, in prison than in college. Now, that, that was first released in 2000 by the Justice Policy Institute. It was actually a good report in that it, it, it pointed to states allocating money towards building prisons and taking money away from institutions of higher education. Uh, that was a point that needed to be made at the time. Most people don't even really talk about that key thesis of the report anymore. All we want to talk about is their finding that at the time when they constructed the report, they found that there was more black men, about 100,000 more black men in prison than in college. Now, the truth of it is that was up for debate then. But more importantly, 12 years later, that finding has never been replicated. The only reanalyses that have been done by myself and other people before me have found that there are more black men in college than in prison. And today, my most recent analysis uh, that I published in in, in an article recently, uh, where I looked at the 4,488 colleges and universities across the United States with their enrollment of non-Hispanic black males, totaled up to 1.2 million and looked at the criminal justice stats uh, that showed that there are 184,000 black males in prison. So there are about 400,000 more black men in college than in prison today, yet we still keep saying that stat. Now, when people like me hear that, we get motivated to make a difference. When people like a teacher that has minimal contact with the black community, who is just trying to figure out this beast that she's dealing with in this school, well-meaning, wants to do the right thing, 
but she gets this information that makes her believe or him believe that the kids that he or she is working with are more likely to go to prison than to go to college. And so we have to beat back against the information that causes these perceptions. We have to understand the problem. We have to acknowledge the problem. But we need to start having a real-time data approach to looking at the problem. We shouldn't be out here talking about data from 2004. We really shouldn't be. But how do we help mm -hmm. current teachers, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, we know that 62% are white female. Right. Um, and there may be issues of perception, mm -hmm. yes, right. we, we, we know that. And so what are some of the things that we can do now, uh, what policies, what can we do mm -hmm. right now to uh, help those teachers uh, edu better educate black boys? Yeah, there are many, and I'll, I'll be brief because I know you have a, you've done a lot of this work too. Um, but in teacher training, uh, there, there's, there's several different seminars I do with teachers. Um, a lot of different topics. One of them is reducing suspensions and disciplinary referrals. Uh, what I found in my research is that uh, about 66% of all suspensions can be accounted for by kids who have problems understanding the information or who are unsocialized to the learning environment. The other smaller percent are those that are fighting in school, bringing drugs to school, bringing weapons to school. That's the small percent of the ones that are being suspended. But it's a deeper issue than just telling them not to suspend. They have, to, they have to come to grips with the policies that are in place at their school, the irregularities in the way discipline is being implemented, their subjective appraisals and their own egos, uh, their, own way of, uh, 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 their own way of thinking about a kid they may be coming to school late or different things like that. Uh, they have to be, it's defensive management that we have to teach teachers in that regard. Another training that I do is on on involving parents in the educational process. One thing that I found is that uh, schools have object biases against parents who have lower levels of education. Uh, they expect all parents to be the type that present themselves as their intellectual equal, the ones that have high expectations of their child's education, the ones that prepare their child adequately before they come to school, uh, will hire a tutor for their child if their child is falling back in school. That's the kind of parents they want. When they get a parent that doesn't really understand the value of education because they didn't have good experiences in education themselves, they didn't graduate from high school, so they don't really know what, they, what their child can do with a high school degree, and they're looking to us to be the expert on their child's education because they don't know. They look at us like we look at a surgeon. These are the types of parents that, that end up getting stigmatized. Uh, we, we, we put them in this single-parent household uh, uh, framework and we're not working them effectively. So that's a, that's a long answer to your yeah. question, but there's a lot of different pieces uh, to this. And, and I'm glad that you brought in the issue of parents because we often fall into, when we look at school reform um, and, and, and trying to address the crisis of uh, educating um, black boys in America, looking at schools, but this is a really holistic issue. We cannot have this conversation without talking about families, without talking about communities. Uh, schools are in communities and they're community institutions. And, uh, and, and Dr. Wimbush's book, The, uh, the Warrior Method, A Warrior's Guide to, wearing health, to Rearing uh, Healthy Black Boys. Uh, Dr. Wimbush, you talk about the impact of racism on the black family and how destructive uh, racism has been on the black family and the black community and how in turn that impacts 
in the education process. And then you also talk about white, gray, and black ways of parenting. And I, and I would like for you to touch on that because of the uh, parent involvement role and the parent role that's really critical to outcomes. Well, you know, I think that many black parents, and I, you know, I hesitate to say most, I, you know, I distinguish between what I call white way, gray way, and the black way, which I call a warrior method. The white way is just you simply send your child to the school, and you expect that child to learn. We're talking about parents now. And when you send them to the school, if the child acts up, many, if not most, black parents simply accept the acting out and say, well, the teacher said this, Johnny, and you got to do better, don't talk back to the teacher, whatever. When I was in the fourth grade, I talked back to my teacher all the time because I knew she didn't know what she was talking about. <laughs> now, I'm very serious about it. She didn't. And, and so I was Fourth acting, grade. Yeah, fourth grade, right. and I acted out. I was punished. A couple times I got sent home, whatever. But the, the, the second thing is that the black way... I'm sorry, the gray way is when you know something is wrong with the school system, you know, and you challenge it, but you really don't create an alternative for that child to be in a healthy learning environment. So these are the parents that they will pick it. They may boycott, a, you know, a school system, or they may do something to try to make an intervention, but the school system stays relatively intact. And then the the black way or what I call the warrior method is simply saying, look, we're going to opt out of this. We're going to start supplementing our children's or my child's education with Saturday schools. Uh, we may start an independent black institution. And this is being done all, or we're going to tell a, a public school system we want a charter school that is African-centered. One of those ways. I mean, I always give the illustration, if you had a like a fourth grade class, and in this class you had these three little boys. One guy's name was Michael Jordan. The other one's name was Michael Jackson. And the third guy's name was Eddie Murphy. You're going to tell Michael Jordan to sit down. You're going to tell Michael Jackson to be still. And what are you going to tell Eddie Murphy? <laughs> you see, and, and those powerful images, and, and culturally, Oh, we're always talking about self-esteem among black boys. And, and, you know, the research shows that black boys have just as much, in many cases, more self-esteem than uh, uh, their white counterparts and so forth. What I believe that many black boys suffer from is cultural self-esteem. They don't feel, they don't see themselves in the curriculum. They, don't, they look at it and say, I see George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. But I don't see Denmark Vesey, you know, you know, marshalling a raid in South Carolina in 1822. They don't see themselves in the curriculum. And amazingly, the system of K through 12 education in, this, in the United States has always been kind of adjusting to the uh, people that go through it, except in cases of black boys. So here in Baltimore, we're doing some research at the Institute right now. Late 1910s, early 19-teens, there was a huge um, immigrant population from Eastern Europe. They started change because they needed to do the docks and the waterfront, unload the domino sugar that was being taken from Jamaica. But that's another discussion. Okay, 
And they adjusted the curriculum here. They retrained teachers here in Baltimore to accommodate the cultural differences of those Eastern Europeans. But see, when I talk to white teachers, and I'm going to be a little harder on them than you are, Ivory, on this one, that when I talk to white teachers, I say, well, what would you teach a Latino child? Well, you know, Dr. Wimbish, I think I need to know something about Spanish, maybe Cinco de Mayo, whatever. What, do you, what about an Asian child? Well, it depends on where. Are they from Korea, Japan, Philippines, whatever? I said, what do you think you should do when you teach a black child? And they just stare at me. They stare at me. And I think many white teachers, and unfortunately many black teachers, see black boys especially and black children in general as just chocolate-covered white kids. You don't need to do anything differently. You just teach them, and if they don't learn, you know, it's their fault. So I think the teachers suffer from cultural deprivation. And, and so how do we change that perception yeah. of the well, chocolate-covered white children? White children. Well, would I, I mean, if I, had, if I were king of the forest, you know, I would tell, I would mandate, as I was in, in teacher training, I would mandate in a public school system that you have to take courses in black culture or Latino culture. You would have to do it. I, I, and I wouldn't apologize for it. And I would, I would tell them that they need to know about black people. I mean, I know this sounds real revolutionary, but it's something very simple. They need, you know, I, ask, I would ask them, what black magazines do you subscribe to? I don't subscribe to it. Get Ebony, get Jet, get Essence. You know, read about black folk. What books have you read about black folk? I've never read anything. What movies have you seen about black folk? Well, once I went to see Tyler Perry, you, you know, you've got, to, you've got to acquaint yourself. If you really are serious about teaching black boys, you've got to acquaint yourself with the culture. How would it be if I, as a black educator or ivory, we, they said, well, Ivory and Ray, we're going to fly to Japan, and we want you to teach into the Japanese school system for a year. I said, well, I don't know anything about language. And Ivory said, man, let's just go over there and make some money, you know. And we flew over there. We didn't know anything about Japanese culture. We didn't know anything about the history of Japan or anything. We would be failures as educators. We would be abject failures. But we tolerate that in the American public school system. I want to go back to uh, the parent. How many parents do we have uh, in the audience uh, with school-aged children? Raise your hands uh, high. Uh, I was uh, raised by a single mom, strong Jamaican woman. Uh, but I remember very specifically uh, in the middle school that I went to, um, after sixth grade, you had to make a choice between major math and science or major gym. And it was a mixed school. And I remember coming home and giving my mother the permission slip to sign for me to go to major gym. Because all my homeboys, we were going to major gym, soccer, hockey tournaments. And my mother looked at me and she said, boy, you're crazy. There's no way I am signing this major gym. And so I had a resentment for two years while my friends were in basketball tournaments, uh, mostly African-American and Latino boys. Uh, I was at the other end of the hallway, 50 yards away, they were playing basketball, and I was messing with a Bunsen burner. And come graduation time, I saw the difference in the high schools we were going to. So my mother 
single mom, she was engaged enough, uh, aware enough to say no. But we know that a lot of mothers, fathers, families are overwhelmed and are not as engaged and may not have even seen the permission slip. What can we do today, tomorrow, this is for both of you, to recommend to support parents to be more engaged to uh, 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 increase the uh, academic outcomes of, uh, of their boys? Yeah. Well, when I was younger, our parents were the ones that taught us all of the African-American history that we weren't being taught in school, and that was important. Um, and I remember when there was a lot of changes that was happening in my neighborhood. And I, my, my mother uh, raised us for the most part alone herself. Uh, and I remember in the, you know, in the 80s when you know, a crack epidemic hit, uh, we lived very close to an area that was a real big drug poverty spot. And um, you know, there, was a, there was a lot of transitions that happened then. And I, when I was in, in high school, that's when things really started going down. I, I remember there was a drug dealer that was, that was killed in front of me. There was three violent incidents at my school in one year, my 10th grade year, two shootings and, and the stabbing that resulted in the drug dealer's death. And you know, I'm trying to, to figure out everything, trying to understand everything. And at the same time, my mother started dating uh, someone named Imario Badelli, uh, who recently passed away. Uh, they, they ended up married my freshman year of, of college, uh, but he was around me during my last two years of, of high school. And, you know, he taught me, along with my mother, taught me the, the ways of black empowerment. Uh, they, they, they gave me books like the ISIS papers, uh, which I was way too young to read because, uh, it, it, you know, it scared the crap out of me. Uh, I was walking around paranoid, um, but, but I, I love myself more. <laughs> But, um, but I, I remember, and this, this, kind of, this, this speaks to, to, to what, what Ray was talking about as far as the, the dynamics that, that happen in school, especially when you, when you have agency and, you know, kids that have agency versus those who are disempowered. So I'm in my, 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 my junior year American history class, and our teacher, and it's a majority black school, majority white teachers, our teacher... Our teacher tells us that slavery is not anything that would happen today, but back then it was a way of life, and that there was a lot of slaves that had very good relationships with their slave masters. So, so I'm sitting up there, I'm, I'm like pissed, I'm like looking around, I'm looking to my left, nobody, you know, nobody looked upset. I, I think I was more mad that nobody was upset than at what she said. You know, we're all black kids in the class. So I raised my hand, and I said, so you call somebody getting their foot amputated because they're trying to run away from you a good system. And so she was like, yeah, I, I, no, not now, not now. Shut, 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 shut. <laughs> so, so I'm sitting up there, you know, I'm still upset. I'm looking at, you know, the rest of the people in class, you know, nobody got my back, you know, nobody had my back. So, you know, in my own, my own adolescence, you know, I'm just didn't know what to do. So she passes the desk, she passes my desk up the hall and I go, now, I didn't mean to kick her. I didn't mean to hit her for real. I was just trying to show off. You know, I wanted, I wanted to get a laugh behind her back. But it brushed her, you know, ever so slightly. And, and she got very, very upset. And she sent me to the principal's office. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get expelled for this. Uh, but luckily, she didn't put exactly what I did. She just said I was disrupting the class. So I go to the assistant principal, and uh, who's also, you know, he's a, he's a white man. 
And he says, you know, I've never seen you in here. You know, what, what are you doing up in here? And I told him about the argument that I had with my teacher. And he said, well, you know, you know what you are? You, you're what they call a critical thinker. Now, you can do that in college, but in high school, you can't do that. So, you know, I took the, I took the lesson, and I, and I went on. But, um, you know, these were the kinds of experiences I was having. But I, I shared that story to, to, to connect the parent piece to the teacher piece. It takes a parent supplementing what we get in school in order for us to get that sense of agency. If everybody in the class was like me, if all of us were pissed off, right. and she had this mutiny that's of students right. saying, you know, oh, heck no, that's not, that's not what you're going to teach us, right. then she wouldn't be able to do that. Exactly. But because we don't have agency, because our parents are disempowered, our, 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 our students are disempowered, you know, we, we can't really get the kind of changes that we need, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take that. And we're going to come back to the parenting, but uh, Ivory, you, you brought up something that is uh, really critical to this conversation because the act that you did with the teacher and, and, and uh, almost kicking the teacher in the butt. Uh, <laughs> ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. Uh, in many schools across the country today, that act uh, might get you arrested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Uh, an act like that, um, you know, could get you handcuffed right on the school, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. a, a, a criminal, a criminal record. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, uh, strategies and, 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 and the success that we, we, we heard about in Baltimore uh, about increasing graduation rates with, with black boys uh, simply was how we help to keep boys still in school. And I know that and with uh, Jane Sundius's uh, uh, leadership at the foundation and a number of community partners, uh, groups like the Advancement Project, rewriting discipline codes, uh, teacher training and, 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 and support. And I would like both of you to address this whole issue of the school of prison pipeline and how our young men are being unfairly treated and expelled uh, and suspended from school, and how that relates to this very issue we're talking about today. You go first on this. Yeah, well, and I, I actually think about that quite a bit. You know, I think about the fact that uh, if someone did that today, they probably would be not only expelled but arrested. Uh, I also think about my behavior when I was very young. Uh, I used to fidget a lot. And I was, uh, I actually looked at a video clip of a, a little white kid today that had ADHD, but very creative. And I saw myself uh, so profoundly in that video uh, where I used to just gaze off in school and, and, and think about everything. I would be counting the dots in the ceiling and not listening to my teacher. And I think about the fact that kids that do that today in certain, con in certain environments are put on psychoactive stimulants. That's right. And, and so there, there's a lot of changes today, but you know, the whole issue of suspensions and, and push out, and there, there's, a, there's a video that I show, uh, and I showed, I showed it this morning uh, with a, a kid from the Beyond the Bricks documentary uh, who says that he called his teacher a name that he shouldn't have called him, and he got suspended for 10 days. And what I was thinking, if my job suspends me for 10 days, they might as well fire me. They might as well tell me that you're fired 
if it's a school that has the type of curriculum that they're supposed to have, if they suspend somebody for 10 days, they might as well assign them to a different school because there's no way to catch up from that. So there's a lot of things that are happening that is beyond logic. Um, I do use Baltimore as an example, and I, I, use, the, um, I use the article that, that you co-authored about, about how Baltimore, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not, if, if there's anybody from Baltimore, I'm not from Baltimore, so if anybody has any problems with it, you talk to Mr. Dove. <laughs> but but, but there, there, was a, there was an article that they wrote that was published in the Washington Post where they talked about reducing the number of suspensions and how that equated to higher graduation rates in this city. That's something that I show as a part of my presentation on suspensions because people need to understand that, and, and you know, it's two things they need to understand. One, I've already told you, if schools would just stop suspending kids for academic reasons, right. you know, if I gave you the kids that bring drugs to school, if you got to suspend them, suspend them. You know, I don't really believe in suspensions, but if, if, we, if we compromise, and I gave you the kids bringing drugs to school, kids bringing weapons to school, kids who are fighting, if you kept all of them and stopped, stopped suspending kids who come to school late, kids who sleep in class, kids who talk out of turn, kids who get under the skin of the teacher, kids who miss assignments, kids who get an attitude with the teacher, if you stop suspending kids for those reasons, if you stop suspending kids that are diagnosed with reading disorders, and they're being disruptive in the class because you haven't given them any accommodations for that disorder, if you stop suspending, suspending kids for that, then you cut back on your suspensions by 66% or better. So, you know, there, there's a, I think that, that, that we're at least starting to talk about it more. You know, the whole zero tolerance uh, language, it, it's not, I mean, at least with the, with the schools that I've consulted with, they have conceded to the fact that zero tolerance doesn't work. So that's, a, that's progress from about 10 years ago when schools were proud to say zero tolerance. They was holding, you know, they had zero tolerance as a stripe on their arm. Uh, so, you know, I, I do see some changes in per perception, but we have a, certainly have a long way to go. Very quickly, like um, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to a conference in Dallas with Michelle Alexander. She's written this brilliant book that you've got to read if you haven't already called, uh, what's it? The New Jim, New Crow. Jim Crow. Yeah, New Jim Crow. And it compares the prison system right now to enslavement 150, 60 years ago. And it's a one-to-one -one comparison. I mean, most of us know right now there are more black males in prison now than were released from enslavement in 1865. They're really, that's a, a fact. And she says that this whole prison, the pipeline, you know, prison, you know, pipeline, whatever, that it's real, that they really are, you know, criminalizing young black males earlier and earlier and earlier. And eventually, I mean, you know, and as a father of two black males, they're older now, of course, but I was nervous as a father with them growing up, making sure that I took them to school. I drove and made sure that they were there, that I was there to pick them up. And it's, it's still black males' risk being picked up, as Michelle said, if for anything. If black males drive too fast on the street, they may be pulled over for drugs. If they drive too slow, the cop will say, well, maybe they've got drugs, that's why they're driving slow. 
If they dress very well, aha, they've got some money on them that doesn't belong to them. If they dress raggedy, oh, they're trying to hide something. So you can be stopped and pulled over for a variety of things. And this is starting younger and younger and younger. Um, I, I give some illustrations in my book about how, you know, I've seen black boys in the third and fourth grade accused of stealing purses from uh, teachers that they didn't steal, but taken through the ringer over a period of five or six days until they get the right thief. And then the example that I gave in the book was a white boy and an apology no apology forthcoming to the parents of the boy that was actually in the trouble or in trouble, and nothing occurred with the white boy. And these are, these are repeated over and over around the country and, again, around the world. Hmm. I want to go back to something that uh, Dr. Tolson said earlier. He said that there was a disconnect between teachers and black boys. Uh, but I think even greater, uh, when we look at schools, I think there are disconnects between schools as institutions and the communities from um, which their students come. And so can you talk a little bit more or talk about just the role of community, uh, the roles of uh, black boys in being actors and uh, uh uh, change agents and what they're dealing with is this notion of uh, the power of positive deviance and that the solution to all the intractable problems that we're trying to solve, not only in this country and the world, rests right in the communities uh, that we are looking to change, rests right in the individuals that we are looking to work on. Talk a little bit about, because I'm looking out there and I'm seeing the T-shirts, uh, uh, I am a black man, the Black Male Identity Project, and I know that they have partnerships in schools, and I know that there are other community leaders. Uh, uh, talk about how do we erase that disconnect between schools and the communities in which uh, they're located. Yeah, it's it's tough right now, and you know I, I want to you know first of all, um, you know thank you for bringing up the whole conversation about the community and how communities are represented and misrepresented. Uh, we do. We really do have to look at the community strengths and build up those strengths. I hear too often people stigmatizing communities. I I, I consult with Philadelphia's juvenile justice services right now. I work with their direct care staff once a month, and one of the things I ask them is, you know, describe the communities, describe the neighborhoods that your kids typically come from, and I hear things like, you know, poverty drug-infested, crime-ridden, violent, a lot of broken homes, single-parent homes, different things like that. Then I would ask them, uh, and, and most of them are from Philadelphia, so I would ask them, how many of you all grew up in neighborhoods that are similar to the neighborhoods of these kids? And a lot of times, at least a good quarter, sometimes half will raise their hand. And so I would ask, well, how did you become direct care staff and not in the same consequence, and then they would start talking about all the positive stuff. You know, it would take me framing it that way for them to talk about the church that was on the corner or that preacher that always looked out for them or that community center that, was, that didn't have the resources that they need, but they always made it work, or that elder person on the corner that just refused to leave the community and would always talk about staying. You know, these are the types of things that we need to acknowledge exist in the community and not get sidetracked on just looking at 
uh, at the violence and what's, what's portrayed on the media. But as far as the, the schools are concerned, schools and communities are becoming more and more disconnected. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure where all of this is going to settle. Um, and, you know, there, there's different issues in different areas. I know that in the South, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I grew up, uh, it, it started, you know, with busing, you know, busing people from outside of their neighborhood to go to different schools. And so taking kids from black neighborhoods and putting them in the school uh, where more white kids were, but then all the white kids would leave that school and go to the private school. And so that school that used to be um, mostly white became mostly black, but all the teachers stayed. And so that's what it looked like in Baton Rouge. And everywhere I go now is something happening. You know, it's, uh, and I'm not against charter schools, but, you know, you have charter schools that come up and uh, a lot of uh, uh, the neighborhood schools are being abandoned. You know, public schools in general are being abandoned. And we're saying, you know, we're, we're just kind of giving up on it. And so as far as uh, school community collaboration, I'm not sure where it's going. It's something that I'm looking at closely, but I'm not sure where it's going. As far as the community centers, I think that an important role for a lot of us right now and community leaders is to make sure that the schools that our kids are going to know that there are other people looking out for them. I remember I had another confrontation with another teacher my senior year, and I won't, I won't tell you all the long version of the story, but she told me that I couldn't do a topic that I wanted to do. I wanted to do... Uh, my term paper on FBI covert activities, COINTELPRO. And she told me I couldn't do it. She told me point blank, she said, I don't believe that, I don't believe in that, and that's not anything you're going to do, do in my class. And I told her that I knew people. I told very privately, I said, I know people, this is going to go beyond this classroom. And she said, don't threaten me, Ivory. And I said, I'm not threatening you. And I walked away from her desk. She called me back up after class, and she said, do your topic. I didn't really know people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but, but it's, it's the community centers, it's the community leaders that these kids need to know. They need to be able to be in a position to say, I know people. When they are being, uh, when, they, when they see injustices at their school, they need to be able to say, I know people. I know people at OSI Baltimore who have my back, who, who, who's going to check on this for me. Okay. And Dr. Wimbus, I'm going to ask you to touch on the uh, community uh, connection. And after this, we're going to open it up for questions. Uh, the mic, and we're going to move this uh, podium, is on the side. And uh, I would like to give preference uh, to those that are uh, 21, well, 24 and younger. Raise your hand. Okay. So uh, you get the preference for questions. So uh, you're going to start. If you have any questions, line up uh, at the mic. Uh, if we have to ask for uh, an ID, we will. We will card you if we need to. Uh, and then, uh, again, I want to reiterate the 30-second rule. Uh, your question, solution, or comment in 30 seconds or less. And uh, I know people, too. And uh, we will cut you off, okay? And so, uh, Dr. Wimbush, if you can just really uh, highlight the whole community connection role. Well, see, I think the parents ha have to be aggressive in organizing outside of the classroom their children. And I believe that, so, you know, teachers will say to me, well, we can't get our parents to come to PTO meetings. They never come, blah, 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 blah. 
And then I look at the topics that are being offered, and they'll have a topic like uh, how to make your kids' grades in math go up. You know, something that I think the parents, when they read what is on the invitation, it sounds good, but parents really aren't interested. We, we, here in Baltimore, about two years ago, um, I worked with a school, and I'm not going to call the name of it, but they were having these boring topics, inviting parents to talk to kids. So we said, I said, look, why don't we have a topic like this? I said, what? Uh, everything that you wanted to know about sexuality as a black man and black woman. The next day, it was packed. I mean, it was packed. Because the subject was attractive. I gave a little talk about that, took a Q&A, and after we did that, we got down to business about education. You've got to be attracted. And I know kids, uh, teachers will say, well, we've tried pizza. You know, we've tried going out. You've got to have subjects to organize your uh, parents that are extracurricular. I believe that if you're an educator, that you educate not nine to five, but five to nine, 24 and seven. And I, and I really believe that I live what I'm talking about right now. I, I do, students will call me, and unfortunately, two and three o'clock in the morning. You know, I tell them not to do that, you know, or, or they'll say to me, didn't you get my email last night? You know, we came at 3 a.m. and I was in the bed. But I think that if you're an educator, you have to really be committed to it. If you're going to educate black children, you have to be committed to that. And, and, and if you're black and say, I don't really like teaching black kids, you should stop. Mm-hmm. Very sim- if you're white, I don't like educating black kids, you should stop. Because I would rather you quit, do what you got to do, you know, and leave those children alone and not to suffer educational abuse. And I'm very sincere when I say that, too. It's, uh, you, you bring up a point, and we're going to go to the question uh, right now, but something, and I've been thinking about this even in the philanthropy and uh, leading a campaign for uh, black male achievement, and how do you increase the levels of love and more people, when I'm thinking about black male achievement, uh, that, you know, literally love black boys, love black people, and the levels of empathy to truly feel and understand what it might be like to be a black boy or a black man growing up in uh, America. And those <coughs> the levels of love and empathy comes with the stories, discon- you know, how do you make this connection and... and, and getting to understand not only who your student is, but who their family is, uh, where they come from. And that takes time. That takes a process. But what you just uh, uh, mentioned made me think of that love and empathy, that we need more of that uh, well, see, in our I, schools. You know, I'm going to say it real quick because I know we got to go to Q&A. But, see, I think that white folks love and hate black males at the same time. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm being honest. This is supposed to be a dialogue on That's race. Right. You know. You know, Ellis Coe's called yep. us the envy of the envy world. Of the world. <laughs> we we love Michael Jordan. We loved Michael Jackson. We some people love Tyler Perry. Whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, we despise them. So we can execute Troy Davis a couple weeks ago. You see, 
it's like we have this love. And that's globally. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about the United States, Baltimore, Maryland, whatever. I'm talking about throughout the world is that we are the envy of the world. We've been over-sexualized. We've been under-sexualized. We, we, we say, let's prop up somebody like Herman Cain, who says, I don't want to be called an African-American. You know, that goes back too far. And that's mm-hmm. an exact quote. That's an exact quote from him. So we love and hate us at the same time. And I want to get some more of the people that love black men. That would be one of my job requirements. Do you love black people? <laughs> and, and, and they may say, of course I do. And then I, I got a whole set of questions I can find out if they love them. All right, we're going to find that. We're going to go to uh, questions from the audience now. Uh, Young people, everyone, you're free to uh, line up, and I'm going to move this so we can um, see each other. And just, you know, before you ask your question, just, uh, just let us know uh, who you are and why you are here, and uh, you still get 30 seconds after that. All right. My name is Earl Johnson. Um, I'm a former educator in the Baltimore City Public School System taught in Baltimore City Public Schools for over 10 years before I left the classroom. I'm a graduate of Morgan State University. I know Dr. Rich very well. I have an undergraduate degree in education. I have a master's degree in education. 15 seconds. Um, (laughs) My question question is this. I think everybody here understands that failing schools is big business in America. Mm. You have companies on Wall Street that that, um, exchange stocks on the New York Stock, Stock Exchange who invest in failing schools. Um, I believe there's a serious absence of African-American male teachers in classrooms right now. Um, I believe that there's too much testing going on to, to, to certify whether this child is achieving or not. My question is this. In Baltimore City, we are importing teachers from the Philippines right now as we speak. Right now as we speak. My biggest problem and my main concern is this. What are African-American young males to do like you just said, when the majority of the people that are educating them are not from their communities, don't even look like them, and now more than ever, many teachers that are in Title I schools are, are Caucasians and or from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you have that one out. He started <laughs> off, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I thank you for your comments, and I, I agree with everything you said. Um, right now... The, the exact percent of black male teachers is 1.8 nationally, and that's, that's down a, a couple of, of um, you know, per, a percent of a percent uh, from when Arnie Duncan first started talking about it a couple of years ago. Um, if we were to get black males' representation in schools up to our representation in the population, it would need to be about 6%, so we would need to triple it. Um, if, if we did triple it, I'm not sure how much of a system change it would be. It would mean that uh, young black males would see three teachers over their 12 years in school as opposed to the one that they see right now nationally. Now, it's going to be different in different cities. Uh, Baltimore has a, a much higher percent of black male teachers than the, than the nation. Uh, but just nationwide, uh, young black males will probably never see, uh, on a regular basis, black male teachers. Now... If we look at Hispanic males, Hispanic females, and particularly Asian males and females, they are also very unlikely to see a teacher that looks like them. 
uh, the percent of teachers that are Asian male is something like 0.6%. So I'm not convinced that it only takes black male teachers in order to, to change the dial. We have to change the perception of the teachers that are working there, that 80% that are white. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that it is not that black males are avoiding the teaching profession. It's that not enough of us are graduating from college. Right now, among black males 25 and older, only 16% have at least a bachelor's degree. That compares to 30% of white males. If you look at the occupational choices among black males with at least a bachelor's degree, teaching is the number one profession. There are 118,000 black male teachers across the nation. There is no other professional profession that requires a degree that has that many people. So it's not that black males are avoiding the teaching profession. Also in the top 10 is counselors, social workers, which are nowhere near the top 10 for white males. So black males have demonstrated that we have a more altruistic nature about us. It's just that we aren't, we aren't graduating at the rate that we need to. So I, I have a, a little, I have some differences with programs that are aimed to change the minds of black males who are currently in school from something that they really want to do like business or law or different things like that. If they want to do that, that's what they need to do. They shouldn't need that. They, they, they shouldn't feel like they need to make any kind of sacrifices in their own personal desires or even income to be a teacher. But what we do need to do is make sure that the 1.2 million black males who are currently in college right now have some kind of opportunity to graduate. Next question. Good evening. Uh, my name is Osei Yadam. I am uh, here because I'm very interested in, in creating strong communities. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there so I don't ruin my 30 seconds here. Um, I'll start off by being a bit idealistic and I'll get more realistic. Um, if we could start by accentuating the positive, assuming we could insulate our children from the system that we talked about earlier, what key indicators should we put in, which, what key indicators should we ensure are in place in the school to create successful black male students? Analogously, more realistically, if I'm currently a parent of a student, what factors should, have, should I be advocating for in my existing school, or what factors should I be looking for in potential schools? Right, we're going to start with Dr. Uh, Winbush, and key indicators is realistic. You know that is not an uh, idealistic uh, 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 something to strive for. Well, uh, this is a good question, brother. I mean, I, I think that what you've got to do is make sure that that school is culturally sensitive. You know, I mean, I know that's an off-used word to the children that they're educating. You know, I, I shudder when I go into an all-black school in Baltimore. You know, population, student population, 90, 80% black. And all the, I see Santa Claus up during Christmas. And then on March 17th, they said, well, let's make some four-leaf clovers for, you know, uh, St. Patrick's Day. And then if they are in summer school, this, you know, July 4th, of course, we have to have the red, white, and blue. And then I might make a suggestion, um, do you celebrate Kwanzaa? Well, you know, what is that? I don't know anything about Kwanzaa. You know, what is that? Or do you know some black birthdays that you could just simply put up on the, you know, the bulletin board? Not just during February. Mm -hmm. You know, I know we love Fred, Fred Douglas and Harriet Tubman because they're from here, okay? But what I'm saying, why can't we talk about 
that today is Yamo Kenyatta's birthday. And that's actually a fact. Who is Yamo Kenyatta? And teach the children that. So, so I've had teachers, both black and white, will say to me, well, Dr. Wimbush, you know, I got to do No Child Left Behind. I got to do all this, fill all this stuff out, and blah, blah, blah. I got to make sure I get AYP and all this stuff. Look, you can incorporate and weave. Asa Hilliard, the great educator, I did not know you were that close to Mario Bedell. We got to talk afterward, bro. But, you know, Asa Hilliard has talked about infusing the curriculum. I mean, and if you're not familiar with Hilliard's work, you ought to be as a teacher. So I would look as a parent to those things in my classroom. Find out what your students are learning. And, and people say, well, that's only dealing with history. You can incorporate stuff in math and science about black folk. You can talk about Imhotep, okay? And some of y'all know who I'm talking about. You can put that stuff in there. And there, there are things that, and if you're not doing it, I would be very reluctant to have my child you know, be in that school. I'm very serious about and, and that. Let's stay there just for a minute because some of that, well, that requires some policy change. Of course. Policy advocacy, changing of curriculum. Um, how do we do that? You do it. You, 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 I, I remember, I'm dating myself now, but I remember in 1963, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, as I said, we boycotted the public school system. Black folk did in 1963 for three days and told them that we, it was during the height of the civil rights movement, Birmingham had just exploded. And we boycotted it successfully, 95% boycott. I don't know what happened to the boycott in the black community. Now, I'm not saying you should boycott Baltimore's public school system, but I think when you're talking about policy changes, you gotta get tough as a parent. You gotta get tough if you're a conscientious black teacher, or you, if, if you're a well-meaning white teacher you got to get tough if you really want to educate black children. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They say, well, you know, I might lose my job or something like that. You know, you got to really, I'm not talking about anything easy. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to go with the uh, uh, next question. And at some point, I guess we'll get some gender equity with these uh, uh, questions. But we're going to ask the next uh, young man. Come on. My name's Luther Thompson. I'm 23 years old. Um, and I was invited by, well, first and foremost, I work in my brother's keeper. Um, I'm in an apprenticeship program, and my supervisor invited me. Um, just by sitting in here, um, I realized how disconnected I am from um, the education and how um, I didn't realize it was such a big problem. I thought of a title of a book, and it was going to be called um, Blind to Me. Um, but anyway, my, my question is... Um, when I was growing up, I had a lot of things going on. My mother died. My father shut me up. He kept me quiet. And um, I never really seen the importance of school. I always was worried about the next day. I was worried about um, problems. And I know a lot of white families growing up, they didn't have to worry about that. They could worry about their future. I never had the opportunity to do that. I'm just now, at the age of 23, getting hold of my reins and, and worrying about my future and doing things that, that um, supplement my future and and the future of people that are coming at, that are coming after me, so so my question is, what can we do, um, me included, um, what can we do to make the people that are coming under us, the younger men coming coming under me, um, make them get it earlier? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I think the the simple solution to that is to talk to them. We got to talk to them. I think that a lot of the kids, they get talked at too much. 
you know, and we don't ask them any questions. You know, we don't find out about their experience. We make a lot of assumptions about their motivation, you know, about, you know, crazy stuff like acting white and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, these assumptions that adults have about kids, but their reality is a lot different and their worlds change really fast. You know, like the young kids today, they're a lot different than the young kids were when I was in school. And so we have to, we have to listen to them. We have to also take advantage of the social media that we have, you know, these new ways that we can connect to people and use that to our advantage. You know, I mean, you can, we can be Facebook friends with people now. You know, we can, we can use Twitter to, to connect with people. So it, it's about helping them to make connections. It's about helping them to, to tell their story and for us to understand their world uh, better. But I, I just want to thank you for, for sharing your story because it was, it was very powerful. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, just like you started thinking, I think a lot of other people in this room started thinking about, you know, what our role is, you know, because that's, that's something that we hadn't really touched on. What is our role? You know, how do we make these connections? Next question. Um, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, before I get started, I just wanted to say I hope uh, the young man who just spoke, I hope you write your book. Um, <laughs> very impressed with your strength and your audacity to get up and share your story. Mm, yes. Um, I have two questions and a possible, two and a possible. My, uh, my, first question, my first question is the alternatives to suspension. I was wondering if you could uh, speak to what practical things could we do in the schools. My wife works in a school, and uh, that's something that they struggle with. My second question is, Dr. Wimbush, are you, do you currently live in Baltimore? Of course. You do. I was, my third but, question. But, but you know, it was funny, man. When I first moved here nine years ago, somebody at Morgan said, are you going to live in Baltimore? I said, well, where's Morgan? They said, it's in Baltimore. I said, well, I'm going to live there. So, I, you know, I can't live in the, the burbs. And, anyway, Absolutely. Well I, well, I asked that. I it's asked that because question. I was wondering, have you strongly considered, thank you, son. It's okay. Have you strongly considered being on the school's board or Baltimore City School, being a part of that panel? I will never be a part of it. <laughs> I think we could use your voice. Thank, thank you. I'm sure. Yeah, they, no. you talked. To, <laughs> no, never mind. Go ahead. I said I wasn't going to get political tonight, Jane. So I'm not. Okay, yeah, just just quickly, just quickly on on alternatives to, to suspensions. Um, in the in the trainings that I've done on suspensions, it seems like the ones the, the schools that have the worst problems with suspensions are the ones where suspensions is more of a subjective process and not an objective process. It's the schools that have the last straw suspensions. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. The, where, where it's the last straw of that teacher or last straw of that student. So the student is doing little small things and, you know, it was just that last thing that he or she did that led to the suspension. But what they did in and of itself, there's no policy that's written that says that that's a suspendable behavior. So the more formalized a program is, the more schools start to look at these specific behaviors are suspendable behaviors, and they should be the most egregious ones. I, I remember giving the example of a, a, a school that kept suspending kids because they were coming to school late. Somebody came to me after one of the presentations that I did on that, and this was a bunch of school leaders from across the nation, and he said, you know, I'm flabbergasted because I didn't know that any school suspended students because they came late. That was just completely out of his world. 
So we need to think about suspending under the most egregious circumstances. We need to formalize suspensions. We need to make it a truly objective process, get the subjectivity out of it. Alternatives to suspensions is mostly, you know, the things that you've heard of, in-school suspensions and different things like that. But I think that it's students getting suspended to begin with, that process in which that shakes out, that's what really needs to be examined. And, you know, one of the things that touched me, uh, the gentleman that came up to ask that question, he, uh, I'm assuming that was your son. That, that, that was your son. And uh, one of the things we haven't been able to touch on yet is, you know, we can't talk about black boys without talking about black men. And talking about black men and the role of fathers in the lives of our boys or the lack of the role because the whole issue of father absenteeism uh, is a critical one. Uh, one of our grantees, uh, you know, you're familiar with Philip Jackson's work, the Black Star Project, has this whole Million Father March movement and the getting fathers to take their children to school the first day and then get them engaged in the school system because there's been demonstrated uh, positive outcomes with more male presence, more dads uh, present. And so before we go to the, the, the next question, uh, I would like for, and I might call on uh, Maurice Moore, I see him back there, uh, who really led uh, Annie E. Casey Foundation's uh, Responsible Fatherhood Movement, uh, and, and pull him over to the mic at some point to talk about this. But could you just touch on the role of fathers and the impact of on boys and educational outcomes? Well, it's critical. I mean, just, I mean, that's another elephant by the tail question, but it's, it's, it's so important. Um, but again, I got to look at the whole system. Mm -hmm. You know, last Friday night, Francis Chris Wells, in which you mentioned in ISIS paper, we gave a workshop here and we talked about how father absence is so connected to the history of enslavement, mm -hmm. Jim Crow, disenfranchisement, high rates of unemployment among black men. This is not something that stopped. And it's amazing in this country how we want to disconnect, you know, absentee black fatherism, you know, from the history of this country that has always taken black fathers away from their families. Mm -hmm. Always, not in the past 20 years, always. And that we've got to talk about how that is still being played out. And, 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 and much of what the work I do is to try to get black mothers to reconnect with their, the fathers of their children. And I tell them, I give them tasks in that direction. Um, I think there's ways of doing that. You know, a lot of times black boys need to be asked questions, as Ivory said, instead of just talking at them, but ask them certain things. How does it feel not to have your dad with you? And watch the boy's expression when he's talking. That's the part of, about being a teacher, but loving that student. And you got to do that. And a lot of us don't want to do that. We ain't got time to do it, so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just, just briefly, with one thing schools have to consider is the majority of young black kids do not have a father in their home. But they, schools have to stop rigidly looking at fatherlessness and just start looking at fathers. Because we can't make the assumption that a man cannot make a contribution to his child just because he's not living in the house with the child. That's 30 years ago thinking. Mm -hmm. We have to think a lot broader than that now. We have to think about the divorced dad, the dad that was never married to the mother, the young father, the father that doesn't have a whole lot of money. We have to really 
widen our net and pull a lot of fathers back. But as long as we're talking about single moms and fatherless kids, we, are, we have these distractions from the solutions. We need to think about mothers and fathers and the roles that they can make regardless of the circumstance they're in. Good evening, gentlemen. My name is Corinthian Kelly, and I'm representing Higher Achievement Baltimore. Uh, my question is about code switching. Uh, we know language is an important part of identity, and we also know that how our kids perceive themselves is equally as important. How do we prepare our young men to, to code switch or be bilingual without taking away their identity? I suspect you have an answer to that, but... Uh... <laughs> We are going to uh, ask our esteemed panelists to address uh, that question. I mean, y'all know what code switching is. Black folk do it all the time. You know, you know, sisters will be sitting around and on the, you know, just talking in the phone ring. They say, "Girls, what's on?" And then the phone ring. Good morning. How are you? You know, <laughs> and, and, and African people in this country have always had to code switch as a survival mechanism. You know, particularly during enslavement. What, what, I, what troubles me, the brother that asked the question, is how, it's an excellent question, we've got to teach young black males to be functional with their code switching by telling them what it is. Mm -hmm. one, one of the things I, use, I love to do with young brothers, they'll say, I say, how many of you listen to Lil Wayne? They'll raise their hand, yeah, I like Lil Wayne, whatever, you know. And then I'll take one of his songs that is, you know, maybe unusually deplorable not that all of it is so he has one recently to, you know he's, he has a verse in there I am not human I mean that's actually the lyric in it and then I'll tell them what does that mean and it's amazing how I see young brothers I'm talking about 13 14 years old they said Dr. Murray, that's kind of messed up isn't it now when they're talking it and rapping it it's cool but then when you start really breaking it down, maybe Nicki Minaj and, and, and talk about how you can't do some of that stuff, they will tell you themselves that they think that some of that stuff is pathological. And I love hip-hop. I do. I really do. Young people are very surprised. I know about this stuff, in fact. They say, well, how old are you? you know? but, but see, I think that you teach young black men, talk to them like they are really intelligent because they are. And, and, and help them to say, Let me, do you know what code switching is? And then tell them what it's all about. Tell them that, you know, we did it for survival, but you can't do that here. You can't go up and say, yeah, what's up, man? You know, and in certain circumstances. So we got to teach them that. And they, they're infinitely teachable, infinitely. Next question. Oh, okay. Um, skipping. We're going to let Maurice skip the line because I think he wants to talk about Sean, you gave people the impression that I have some heavy words of wisdom to drop on them, and that is not true. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, Sean and, and the Open Society Foundation sponsoring this forum. They're doing things like this around the country. You know, Sean could probably spend an hour talking about all of the initiatives that they're involved in, uh, most of which, uh, and especially under his portfolio, have to do with African-American males. And so I'm going to appeal to him to have the next forum, hopefully not too long from now, to deal with the issue of fathers, and particularly, particularly the role of fathers in schools. And I'll just uh, end this by <coughs> excuse me, saying that I'm working with a school, actually it's an elementary school, 
and a, an early uh, learning center in Atlanta. And we actually have gotten about 65 fathers to have a, an active role in the kids' lives. And the principal of the, of the elementary school, the executive director of the early learning center say to me, Maurice, we couldn't do our work effectively if we didn't have fathers coming into the school and playing a major role. And any of you who might be interested in this, I'll let you, I'll talk to you about it after this. Or, you know, I'll talk to Sean and we'll factor it into the next uh, forum. Thank you. Thank you, Maurice. Uh, Ivory just whispered in my ear. I know he's propping up the campaign, but he still gets a 30-second rule, too. So I'm glad you stopped when you did. I didn't have to cut you off. Next question. I want to say thank you very much for this information. It is very helpful. And as far as fathers being in the classroom, my husband's back there being very modest, but he actually volunteers in the school. And it has made such a difference in the children's lives. So you don't have to be a biological father to make a difference to a child. My question, um, my question is, um, all of the statistics that you provided, um, I'm sure your research is very valid. But when I look around in my community, I don't see that. I really do see the, the school-to-prison pipeline and so many young men who are out trying to find themselves with no support. How do you help a high school student who has faced all of those things that you described, the, the being um, ostracized, not given the support, now they're in the 12th grade and they're struggling because they've missed so much time, they've been sent to juvenile justice, all of this stuff because they didn't fit in the box. So how do you help them? Because these ideas that we're talking about down the road for a 12th grade student, it's not going to matter. So if you can tell me some resource that I can give to my sister in Atlanta, I'd be very happy to take a tour. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, there's, there's no simple answer to that question. In general, when we think about kids that come from very tough areas, where all the odds are against them. One thing that I always suggest is to work with kids in groups, work with kids with their friends. A lot of times we try to isolate kids from their peers. Sometimes the first thing we tell them is, you're hanging around the wrong crowd. You know, we need to get you, and a lot of times they are the wrong crowd, but that's a different story. But we have to be able to, to get the entire crowd together and work with them in, with a strategy that speaks to them progressing as a group. A lot, of t a lot of times they affiliate with bad people because that's the only ones they, that, that understand them and that show them love. A lot of times they have to go to the streets for that kind of love. There's an there, there's a, a organization in, in D.C. Uh, uh, I forgot the name of it, Com Community Network Enterprises or something like that. Um, but they talk about the whole idea of taking kids in groups and finding out who's the leader of that group, who's the one that's calling all the shots here, and then pulling that person or those people out and give them a deal. You know, say, you know, you have a lot of leadership qualities, and right now you're using your leadership qualities to steer a lot of people down the wrong road. But if you had a new opportunity, if you had the opportunity to use your leadership qualities in a way that's going to advance you instead of making you head to prison, would you take that opportunity? And he says every time they have this conversation with these kids, they take that opportunity. <clears throat> so it does take those types of approaches. Just like with, connecting back to what the gentleman talked about earlier, we have to talk 
to the kids, talk with the kids, and you know, see where their head's at and work with them in, in, the, in the group and their network. And, and I just want to say also to add to that, that in the black community, we have really have got to understand that the Calvary is not coming to save the day, that there is uh, no Lone Ranger that's coming in to uh, save our children, and that we grew up in a time where, and you talk about this in your book, the extended family, where uh, there was not this intergenerational disconnect. And we got to find some ways to manufacture this kind of communication and bring in young people uh, together. And I grew up in a time when there were block parties, right? And so some of this is starting right where we are with what, what we have. And uh, adults are scared of young people, right? Only because this is not this form of uh, communication. And no one from outside is going to break that. We have to do that within the black community. And one other thing to the sister who just asked the question, it's never too late to, you know, intervene in the life of a black man. You know, he may be in the 12th grade, but if he is as conscious as you are, just from what you said, let him know what the truth is about the situation that he has been in for the next 12 years and said, now we're going to do something better. We're going to start reading together. Issue. We're going to read the ISIS papers together. We're going to look at some things that from this point on relative to college. You, I graduated so low in my class at John Adams High School in Cleveland, Ohio, back in the day. I, I mean, people are now so surprised, shocked. Ray is an educator? And, and I'm not kidding. I, it's, it's the truth. And I think it's never too late. I, my intervention, I've, as far as I am concerned, didn't occur until my freshman year of college. And the only reason why I went to college, my parents said, you got to go to college. They didn't even know it was because my mother didn't finish but the 10th grade. And my dad said, I don't know what college is, but you got to go. And it, it wasn't until the freshman year of my college year that I really started doing stuff. Okay, great. Now, we have 20 minutes left. So we have to get into soundbite mode, both panelists. 30 seconds is now 15 seconds. So I want to get to as many people as possible on the line in the 20 minutes. And uh, Jane, go start the car if I need to uh, hurry up and run out of here to get to the train station. Greetings. Hi. Hi, Sean. And, and thank you, Sean and Jane, for putting this on. I really want to say briefly, in, in Baltimore, uh, out of 195 TFA teachers this year, only seven of them are black males. And so we have to pay a lot of attention mm. to that. But my, my question is, we're working with uh, about 15 uh, fourth and fifth grade boys uh, who, are, who, who are mostly high achievers or boys that should be high achievers. And um, literacy is very, very important. And, and in our conversation this evening, I've not heard a lot of talk about literacy, about raising the bar of achievement for our boys, about raising our, our expectations, about leveling the playing field. So, Someone want to answer that question? So I would like you to talk about that. You know, Baltimore's, you know, one time was called a city to read, you know. And, and, and I think that reading takes a variety of forms right now. Uh, I, I think that you've got to use, you know, CDs or books on CDs. Let people hear. I mean, was the study that was done years ago? Three hundred eminent person, and they looked at uh, Gertzel, Gertzel, and Gertzel. I never will forget their names. And they looked at what was the most common denominator among 
uh, people who were, quote, successful by the criteria they established. It was that they were reading or being read to a lot before the age of 10. So I tell parents to read to their children. Uh, and you got to keep doing And sometimes if the parent can't read, and they may not want to admit that, make them a gift, you know, for Kwanzaa of a set of books on tape or on CD now, I guess they call it. Okay, next question. Hi, uh, Lewis Young, born and raised in Baltimore City. Uh, the question that I have today, you've talked a lot about supplementing the education of African-American males and African-Americans in the urban setting. What I haven't heard a lot of today, but I wanted to ask the question on, was the role of economics, wealth accumulation within these disparate communities that a lot of other, that a lot of other cultural groups a Jewish, Iranian, or any ethnic group in the United States have utilized wealth as a way to change the system in the manner that they want to change it. So in terms of uh, what, what you see or what you think along those economic lines, I'd like to get your thoughts. You want to try Well, you know, economics are important. You know, I, I still, again, see, it's impossible even as a psychologist for me to just blot out history. Uh, among, you know, Caribbean blacks, there's this thing called susu, and you, I'm sure you may have heard of it, about pooling your money together. Koreans do it. We could start things like that. But, you know, I, the greatest transfer of wealth that occurs every week in the black community is on Sunday, I'm sorry, on Monday morning when black churches take all of their money and put it into a white bank. And if I could, and I was in a group this, this week over at Sojourner Douglas College, and I said, if we could get the 10 biggest black churches in Baltimore to say we're going to pull our money out of you know uh, Mariner Bank and I hope nobody's here from Mariner Bank or Bank of America and we're going to start our own credit union which black folk used to do 30 40 years ago that would make a statement that would make a statement so I agree with you wealth is important yeah, I agree. next question all right this is going to be pretty hard because I was expecting to, to give a 20-minute shameless plug for my organization, so I'm going to have to shorten it down. But, Make it uh, 15 seconds. <laughs> my name is Mariska Jordan. I'm with Jubilee Arts, a partner with Black Male Identity, uh, awardee of the OSI Fellowship, and uh, we're an arts center located in the Sandtown community, part of a larger organization, Newborn Holistic Ministries, which takes a holistic approach at addressing the needs and building upon the assets of our community. And um, one thing that we do, you think arts organization, you think we're only doing drawing and, and painting, but uh, we definitely have to deal with all of the issues that come along with, um, with our community. And one thing that we, I've definitely seen is uh, seeing young men who are a little bit older, um, those who are in the 11th and the 12th grade who have those literacy issues, um, who have those behavior issues. And a lot of times we get folks who want to come and help out uh, with the 5th graders and the 6th graders. But when it comes to the older gentlemen um, helping to tutor them or to support them when they're in school, it's a little bit of a harder issue to get someone to have the patience um, or just the belief that they can do better. So I guess mine is more of a call of action, looking for mentors for the young men in my program um, and also maybe just some advice on how you can change folks' perceptions, black men, their perceptions on young black boys and getting involved in their lives at a, an older age. Okay, make sure you stand by the door as folks are leaving to sign them up uh, for mentoring and artistic cards. Uh, next gentleman, question. Hotel. Hotel. Speaking of um, books on audio, Baba Ray, I'm still waiting on yours. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Matt Presbury. I'm a father. I'm an educator. And I host Black Fathers Radio on Blog Talk Radio and a proud member of the Black Daddy Gang. But anyway, um, I, I just wanted to say I wanted to reiterate a lot in terms of 
really, truly loving children. I mean, you, you can say you love them and you can give the whole spiel, but if you don't really do it from your heart and you don't really believe that every child has the ability to succeed, some people say that, but in their actions and in their talk, as I said, I'm an educator and I see it every day, and people say things on the sly and they think you don't hear, or even if they know you hear, they don't care. And, and it makes you understand that they really don't believe that this particular child right here can succeed. Um, the other thing is there are a lot of fathers who want to be involved and they don't know how, they don't know what to do. So if you really love children and you really want to see them succeed, if you have the opportunity at your school, start a fatherhood organization. We just started one in my school. It's called the Fan Club. Fathers are necessary. So if you have the opportunity, please do that. And then the last, last point really quickly is the system ain't broken. It works how the power structure wants it to work. And either we create a new system or we change the one that we have. And, and, and in helping to do that, we have to support programs such as my, my oldest sons are in ISA Academy, which is an African cultural academy. My younger two, my daughter and my son, are in Black Genius Youth Academy. And I support UYIP and the PLM African Marketplace. Even if you don't put your children in these things, support them, because one day they're going to have an independent African school. And if we don't support them, nobody will. Ashe. Ashe. My name is Mary. I guess my statement is that thank you all for making me think a little bit more about the situation. But I know now I'm a grandparent, and I know how important my grandmother was with me. Is anyone in this area start, you know, kind of doing a study or any kind of research on the importance of having that third generation? Because when I was a young mother, I look back now, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things that I thought I was doing, I was doing correctly and now I know better. So just to keep me thinking and forward thinking, is there anyone looking at that, that um, importance, whether it's a grandmother or a grandfather? I'm not being whatever. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to make sure we connect you with uh, someone here in Baltimore, David Miller, who's um, uh, running the Raising Him Alone campaign, which started off with single mothers. And through his work, he's finding out that so many grandmothers are raising their grandchildren and dealing with the education system. So we'll make sure that you get David Miller's uh, information with the Raising Him Alone campaign if you don't already know. Yes, young man. Good evening. My name is Keith Holly. Um, I just kind of want to get an idea of your perception. Um, I'm a young black father, a black educator. I'm born and raised in Baltimore City. Um, oftentimes in my profession, um, with my white counterparts, I often hear the phrase that black men need to stop complaining about their situation. Um, me personally, it offends me, and I oftentimes get offended. And I just kind of want to get some other perceptions of how to tackle that perception, because I understand that sometimes people's perception is their reality. It might appear that black men just want to complain. I know differently, but... You know, how do I tackle that? When I okay, hear who that? wants to take that? Well, see, I would challenge the word complain. Because black folk, it seems that we're always accused of, quote, complaining when we talk about our past, especially with regards to injustices. So I would challenge the word complain. Neely Fuller, a great author, says, just because somebody gives you a word, don't necessarily respond to it right then. So I would ask him, what do you mean by complain? Mm -hmm. And then see what he says about complain. And then I would challenge that. That's a simple 25-cent solution right there. Yeah. The, best, the best, best defense is offense, and I think that's what you were, you were saying. <laughs> so, you know, ask questions. Yeah. Next. 
Hello, my name is Camelia Satterth. I am a passionate teacher in Baltimore City, and I think that um, we should isolate the black male conversation without bringing in black girls. So my question was, how do you think we can, as teachers, foster healthy relationships between black girls and black girls in the academic setting? I just think you gotta do it, you know. I mean, see, I always think that when, if one of us are under attack, at any level, all of us are. And so, I mean, yeah, I wrote a book about black boys, but black women read more than black men do. And, and I think that you've got to, in terms of black girls are concerned, you've got to do some of the same things with black that you do with black boys in general. Just do the same thing. Uh, talk to young girls at young ages. You know, I, I talked to a young lady about, it was about four months ago. She had just had a baby. She was, you know, 16 years old, and she was not practicing birth control. And I told her, you know, I said, are you practicing birth control? She said, well, I don't need that now because I'm breastfeeding. She had thought that, that she couldn't get pregnant while she was breastfeeding. So I told her that. You know, now I know that a mother should have told her that, a father should have told her that. But, you know, I know this sounds very simplistic, but I am just very, very honest when I'm talking to black folk or white folk, you know, you got to tell the truth and claim no easy victories, as Cabral said, and, and just tell the truth. And a lot of times we don't want to hear that. So I would just say do similar things as you do with black boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and some, sometimes we, we don't acknowledge the struggles of, of young black girls the way that we should in this larger conversation. There is a lot of interest in black boys right now, but there are a lot of issues that are, are, are specific to our race that is irrespective of gender. Uh, when I look at the suspensions data, you know, I don't understand why black girls nationally, well, I, actually, I do understand it, but black girls nationally are being suspended at a much higher rate than white boys. But yet when you look at criminal justice statistics, you know that, black, that white boys are engaged in far more violent, delinquent, drug-type behaviors than black females are. And so, so we, we do have to look at a lot of these issues. I think that, that, that black, black girls in this entire conversation, a lot of times we don't acknowledge uh, what they have to put up with and what they have to deal with, particularly black mothers. You know, as the, and, and, and black female teachers, you know, and, and all of this. So, so I thank you for making your comment. And uh, I, I guess I have, you know, I, I'm thinking more than I have a, a, um, a, a response to your question. But you did make me think about that. And, and, and we're doing an a all-day or two-day or three-day conference in two hours uh, here. And so this is not a, a singular conversation. This is not a start of a conversation. This conversation has been happening in Baltimore, and it's uh, going to continue. Hi, I'm Carlton Wilkinson. I want to say hello to Dr. Hey, Wimbush. We share experiences at Fisk and Vanderbilt. And, uh, but I actually want to talk to you, Dr. Tolston. If you, as a teacher, I, as an educator, 24 years, I've made a decision to leave teaching this year. Born burned out, feel ineffective in the way I can teach. Reason being is because HR tells you not to talk to them about personal matters, don't touch them, don't touch you, you don't meet with them out of the classroom setting or in 
office hours, you don't do this, you don't do that. And as a creative thinking teacher, that's an oxymoron. And a lot of parents and teachers and first-time college students don't know how to approach that black professor. They don't know how to, and you're not necessarily supposed to focus on them as well. How do you do it? How do you make that connection? All the things we're trying to accomplish here in the new system of education, which is very impersonal, email, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. How do, you, how do you propose to make that connection to that freshman who needs your help so badly, mm-hmm. but you can't invite him to lunch, you can't invite him to, to any kind of private session, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. engage them in how, any how do you personal make that way? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, can't, I can't pretend that I can relate to your experience because my experience working on a college campus is much different. Uh, and I, I, I certainly sympathize with that. But when I, when I first came in and started teaching, I gave all students my cell phone, and I had people who were uh, much older than I was saying that that's a no-no. Uh, that I told them that they could call me anytime that they wanted. I said, even if, even if it's at midnight, if you need to call, you call. If I'm asleep, my cell phone will be turned off, so don't worry about that. Um, right now, you know, I, I live right downtown D.C. Uh, my, my days are tied up a lot, and, a lot and, I, and I have to use my evening time to meet with students. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here in Baltimore. I'm, I was in Philadelphia yesterday. I'm in Indianapolis tomorrow. So I'm meeting with students on the weekends. I'm meeting with students in the evening. Uh, Busboys and poets at Fifth and K, that's my office. You know, and, and, you know, right now I haven't gotten any pushback for it. It's, it's, it's seen as eccentric among my peers, you know, that I'm meeting with students so often. But when I'm meeting with all of them, and, you know, they, you know it's not this one in particular or anything like that you know so um but you know at a high school level I, the the restrictions are much different and I understand that there are a lot of changes in society right now one bad incident makes everybody all up in arms and and there there is a lot of of um of boundaries that we have right now so um okay we have what two more questions or three more three two okay identified was that males can't necessarily relate to the history they're learning and nor do the teachers have much information on their background in history so bring in maybe more black teachers or our male teachers that can identify with their students and help them learn better but I think like as a female I didn't always have that same influence I didn't even learn about maybe feminist like baby for Dan until college mm-hmm. and the effects of Malcolm X and his teachings as a Catholic and him being an Islam or Muslim weren't exactly lost on me either. Do you think if you bring in more black male uh, teachers that that same like uh, diversity in um, in ideas and things like that will be lost? Like diversity of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, perspectives will be lost on black males if they're being taught by people who think alike or have come from similar backgrounds. Yeah. Well, I, I want to reiterate something I said earlier. I don't believe that more black male teachers alone is the answer. And I'm not optimistic at all about black males seeing even a fraction of the black male teachers that they will white female teachers. The demographics of this nation just won't support that. So the best they'll get is 6%, meaning they'll see about three teachers. So so I don't believe that. But as far as history is concerned, you make a very excellent point that we all are miseducated in a way. 
um, you know, women are also left out of history books. Uh, there was a, a great book that I read called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that just broke down, you know, all of this. And, you know, w- you know, reading that book, I felt a kinship to white people because they're being miseducated about a lot of things, too. You know, if you are and if you have an activist spirit, you're being miseducated. You know, if you if you are Native American, you're being miseducated. If you're a woman, you're being being miseducated. So, you know, I, I don't I don't believe in rigidity of roles when it comes to teaching. I don't believe that you have two black male teachers at your school and you stick all of your black boys in that class, you know, especially the low-performing ones, because a lot of times they'll keep the high-performing black male, just, but the, 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 the ones that's not doing good, we're going to put them in Mr. Tolson's class. Uh, I, you know, I don't believe in, in that kind of rigidity of role. I believe that all of us should learn all of our history and give it to students in a way that's meaningful to them and their experiences. Great, thank you. And last question. Well, um, I was discriminated against. You know, he asked for young people to come up here. <laughs> I just couldn't sit any longer. <laughs> the reason I, I want to share with you, first of all, I got my doctorate degree from the University of Maryland College Park in 1985. Now, I'm doing, and my question is, what are the advantages and disadvantages of integration? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we, we have three minutes. <laughs> okay. And let me, I am... Let me tell you why I asked that question, because I got my master's degree at Howard University at the expense of the state because I couldn't go to Johns Hopkins or Towson or any of those schools. That's because the, the, the state took care of my tuition and my travel and my books and everything to keep, make sure I didn't come to school in Maryland. Okay? But it didn't stop the teachers. Only the teachers could do this now. All right, now, as time goes on, uh, I decided, after integration, I decided to go to Towson at Hopkins to see, wow. And then, hmm, there are some people there not as smart as I am. Okay, but that, I had to learn that. But you see, it's all racism, you know, from way back when. It's deep-rooted. But my mother, by the way, I had three strikes against me when I was born. I was African-American. I was a female African-American. I was a dark-skinned female African-American. And we know, let's be real, and it still, it still works today, too, but not as much. But my mother told me that I was as good as anybody else, and I could be anything I wanted to be, but I'd have to work twice as hard. Mm. But so that's what I'm saying about now mothers. I see a lot of ladies here. I had a son, and I raised him until he was 12. But I made sure he didn't have a father, a biological father, but I put him in the Boy Scouts, in the Little League, in anything else where he could see and relate to other male characters. So that helped him. He's the father of his own child now that's doing very well. But I said that to say, let's look broadly. Ladies, take care of your kids. You know, you know, the man's the head, the woman's the neck, but the head can't move without the neck. Thank All you. All right, thank you for that. Good note to 
and, 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 and I think we have two uh, forums to add if they haven't been touched on. I think Maurice Moore mentioned a forum on uh, fatherhood and its impact in education and uh, the uh, integration uh, issue and the, the, the pros and cons of that. Okay, in, in, in two minutes, Deborah Rubino said we got to be out of here at nine, so I'm already messed up with this, uh, the moderator's uh, uh, role. But in closing comments, let's give our panelists a round of applause. Uh, and, and we could sit here and, and, and talk with you for another uh, couple of hours, but in your closing uh, 90 seconds each, um, you know, the theme tonight was uh, helping black males achieve academic success. Uh, and, and, and also want to uh, thank uh, OSI Baltimore and, and the library for hosting this uh, uh, engaging and enlightening uh, conversation, and so thank you for that. Uh, what does success look like uh, in, in, in your closing comments, both uh, Dr. Winbush and Dr. Tolson, uh, when it comes to uh, successfully um, educating black boys? Well, su success for me in 90 seconds or less it means that by the time that child becomes a man at 21 years old, 18, wherever you want to put it, that he has a conscious understanding of who he is as a black male in a world that denies that and that he teaches other black males and black women about that issue. So it's that he has become a teacher. He has experienced teaching that he understands who he is. He's not, and I have to say that he's not a Herman Cain. He knows who he is and can teach that to other people. That would be my criterion for success. Thank you. Uh, success is a very chaotic process. And if you work with kids right now, you can look at those kids. You think you know which one is going to be successful and which one is not going to be successful, but you don't know. You might as well treat every last one of them like they might be that kid that will point to you and say you helped them along the way. There were times, and I was a very unassuming kid. I, I had a hint of ADHD. I wasn't easy for a lot of teachers to work with. There were some teachers who thought that I was slower than my peers. There were other teachers that thought I was brilliant. But I became, you know, what my mama considers successful. So, you know, I say that to say that any kid that you work with has that potential. They could be that person. A lot of them will be that person, so treat them all as though they are going to be that person, regardless of the peculiarities in their behavior right now, regardless of their success or lack thereof right now, regardless of their odd behavior patterns, delinquency or whatever, they could be that one that's going to be a success. So you might as well jump on the train now. Mm. And let's, um, again, uh, give our panelists a round of applause. It has been totally enlightening engaging and educating and um, we're going to ask um, Diana Morris to uh, come and uh, give us some final remarks and uh, give yourselves a round of applause as well. Thank you. I want to thank you all again for coming and you can see why I love my job to have colleagues like Sean Dove here. So thanks to Sean Dove for doing a wonderful job moderating. 
If you want to learn more about our forum series and really become engaged in this kind of big community of activists that we're trying to build, please do look at our new blog. It's audaciousideas.org. And that's a place where you can express your own views and make sure we know what's going on in the community and post it and actually help to continue this kind of evening with other forum series. Thanks so much.